Today is January 19th. Uh, welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Uh, our guest today is Leslie Whitaker. Hi, Leslie. Hi. She's a research fellow at the National Institute of Drug Abuse, where she's working with both Antonella Bonci and Bruce Hope to look at the intersection of synaptic level adaptations with neuronal ensemble activation and associative learning as it relates to drug seeking and relapse. <laughs> Close enough, right? Um, uh, around the room, we've got Carlos Palladini and his bagel that he's going to be chewing on. Hello. We've got Matt Wanut. Yes. Finally, I'm saying it right. Everyone, his name is Matt Wanut. I've been doing it wrong for years at this point. <laughs> we've got Claire Selly. Okay, I can't get that too wrong. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And Charlie Wilson. Hi. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. Um, so let's just start with your... With your most, uh, I think it's your most recent paper, the 2016 paper, the biological psychiatry. So um, it identified a, a context-selective synaptic change mm -hmm. to accumbent shell neurons during associative learning, and there are so many things to unpack in it mm -hmm. um, in terms of method, model, motivation, all of that. But let's start with the neurons. So you're not looking at individual neurons here. You're this is a, this is a little more involved. Um, uh, so. Well, I am recording from individual neurons. You are, but you're, yeah. but okay, but let's talk about this idea of, neuro, of yeah. neuronal ensembles. Mm -hmm. and, and so, can you introduce us? This is, this is, sure. this is Bruce Hope's. Uh, right, right. Baby. So, I'm in, I'm in Bruce Hope's lab, and, and we're interested in the study of activity dependent neuronal ensembles um, with the idea that, you know, we're trying to uncover what sort of cellular mechanisms are mediating associative learning, and that this can't possibly be reflected in sort of general changes within an entire. Uh, set of cells in a brain region. So, so the idea is to find a mechanism that's a little bit more spe specific. And so, so we've tried uh, using activity-dependent ensembles to try to get at this question of what specific changes within the uh, within the cells that are active during a particular type of of learned behavior. Uh, what sort of changes do we see that might be encoding learned associations? And that's sort of been the goal of of all of the the research. I have sort of a, a general interest in, in how ensembles are formed over the course of learning, and, and we have some, some recent data to suggest that um, we see sort of an activation of a more general type of population of the cells at the initial stages of learning that then sort of refines down to just the, the most critically active population of cells later on in, in the learning um, and, and so I'm interested in looking at how does, how does that process happen? Um, you know, what sort of inputs are, are important for getting the specificity of the associations? Are, are there specific uh, downstream targets of the FOSS expressing cells within accumbens as well as the prefrontal cortex uh, that, are, that are important for, for driving learned behavior? I kind of want to unpack that whole, that whole thing. I, you know, hopefully it's a whole career's worth of work to do that. Could you talk a little bit about like the time course with CFOS mm -hmm. and how that sort of signifies? I mean, because it's a it's a cool transgenic line that you've been using here is yeah. these, you know, GFP so fluorescent, you know, activated CFOS, you know, um, mm -hmm. containing or neurons with, that are um, activated and have CFOS expression, light up green. And mm -hmm. so, what sort of the time course? How long are you going to end up seeing this sort of GFP, you know, signal? Is it you know is it a fate marker? How, Right. Maybe you ought to explain yeah. this. What? Because sure. I didn't understand yeah. a word he said. <laughs> yeah, I want, and he's well, not the one with the bagel. <laughs> okay, so this, so now we're, we're we're deep in the technique. How are you actually identifying these ensembles? Right. So so we use the immediate early gene FOSS, which is an, a neuronal activity marker. It's been used for several decades to identify cells that were um, active 
90 to 120 minutes prior to the expression of the FOSS protein. So that's how we tag uh, activity-dependent ensembles, is to use expression of FOSS. What you said was interesting. So you're see, you, you actually, so you do a time course, uh, mm-hmm. so during the course of learning. So right. there are a couple of questions in there. So I, I'm actually wondering, I'm sort of still back on the coding part yeah. and what you're imagining that these things, and this may only be interesting to me, is, is sort of the operation that you're coding here, the actual association, or is it something about the process of learning? Because this degradation idea is interesting, and we should get to exactly how you're measuring mm-hmm. the degradation, mm-hmm. too, which is what I think Matt was kind of mm-hmm. getting at with the technique. Mm-hmm. But what are we talking about in terms of what these neurons are actually encoding? Right. So, I mean, so that's kind of the, the million-dollar question, right, is, is well, I'm looking for what, what mechanisms are coding learn, these specific Q-reward associations. So, so I'm interested in associative learning and how, how does the brain learn that um, some, some previously neutral Q uh, now predicts the presence or availability of a, of a reward. Um, how, does, how does that pairing happen? Because we're, we're all really good at performing this computation, but how, how does the brain actually go about coding that? And, and so the general idea is just that it can't, it can't be coded by general changes in a whole brain region or cell type. It has to be, you know, in these sort of activity-driven ensembles. And, and I don't know what the specific changes are, but it, in my mind it has to be some combination of a, a kind of a shift in synaptic weights in, in addition to changes in intrinsic properties of the cells that have to be coding this, this learning. But it seems like there would be clues in the fact that you see this, so it's a sparse code mm-hmm. to begin with, and then it refines itself even more. And this is this is everywhere you've looked. So well, it's looked not that it. sparse to begin with. I mean, it, it's a it's a larger population in the beginning, sort of the very beginning of the of the learning, um, learning stages when the cells are kind of more responsive to all sorts of different inputs. Maybe some of which don't have anything to do with the specific learning. It's just sort of we just see a sort of generalized increase in in the brain region. But by the time the animals have sort of learned to habituate to the aspects of the the context and the and the training that are not really relevant to the learning, we see a much more sparse distribution of, of the of the neurons. And at that point, it's about five percent of the population of cells in a given brain region, at least in the regions that we've that we've looked at. So if people have done, uh, you know, classical extracellular electrophys to see the, because the way your framework goes is there's CFOS cells or not, there's activated cells or right. not, right. and it's a very binary kind of thing, mm-hmm. and I don't know, is it is it really that way, or right. is it kind of half that way, or mm-hmm. you have a ceiling effect, or how much do you know about that mm-hmm. kind of in or out kind of perspective? I mean, we, we kind of... In in a way, like you have to draw the line somewhere in terms of calling a cell active or, or not act or not active, right? And I kind of assume that that what we're seeing with our FOSS expressing ensembles could even be an underestimate of the cells that are that are involved. It's just it just happens to be at least with the types of learning and in the brain regions that we've looked at that the FOSS expression thres- threshold seems to coincide with at least having enough. En- it at least tags enough of the population of cells that's implicated in a behavior that we can see some sort of behavioral output when we remove it when we selectively lesion the FOSS expressing cells. But I don't, I mean, I don't think there's anything particularly special about, uh, you know, the FOSS ensemble itself, just that it, it happens to, to exist at sort of a, the correct calcium level threshold for us to be able to um, get this behavioral effect. So how long, so say you've got whatever, uh, behavioral manipulation, you get CFOS activation, mm-hmm. and your typical protocol is probably to patch that day or one day later, or... Right. Um, how long, so what would happen if you were to look at the number of like CFOS cells, you know, five days out, you know, right. how long lasting is a particular, you know, 
insult to an animal that elicits this sort of CFOS activation, mm-hmm. you know, do you, what's the time course that you start to see the sort of decay in the number of CFOS cells? Or do you see that? Or right. what's, what's sort of the, the window you're looking at here that a cell is sort of active for mm-hmm. and rel- relative to a particular sort of behavior right. or insult to the animal? So there's a, there's uh, one of the sort of limitations of using the FOS GFP system to, to identify the cells is that, you know, FOS in general is kind of, expression is maximal at about 90 to 120 minutes, and we start to see some decay of the FOS signal at about three hours post-stimulus. Um, the GFP tends to hang around for about six hours, and then we see degradation at that point. So in, with, with this particular transgenic, we can't really look five days out. So we kind of require the acute induction of FOS to be able to identify the population, which is, is a bit of a confound, and it would be nice to have a way uh, to to sort of look at the look at the uh, population over the course of time, you know, not requiring something some sort of acute stimulus to induce FOS expression. Why does the GFP go away? Uh-huh. I understand the FOS has probably got some enzyme or something that destroys it, but that's a good question. Um, I I guess so. I've seen degradation of the signal just kind of using the confocal microscope, and I've attributed that to first of all, there's some probably some photo bleaching effects just you know from from doing the imaging over time. Um, but I don't I don't know what sort of mechanism the cell has to degrade the the GFP, or if it is even degraded, or if it is entirely attributable to just kind of a bleaching effect over time. So I'm not so I'm not really sure. So you're looking. So you, I mean, you've looked in your work at at accumbens. I mean, I guess there's there's work in VTA also, yeah. and then um, where where else have, mm-hmm. are you? Or you're sort of looking at a larger span of where things are being activated on the time scale that you're interested in, or is this just you're just focused in on accumbens at this point? Um, so I've sort of focused it just because of my general interest in in sort of um, addiction and and reward learning in general. I've sort of stuck to this mesocortical limbic circuitry. Um, but another another reason that I've sort of stuck with these these striatal regions in the the PFC is that we have shown in these regions with several different types of behavior that we have a, a causal role for the fossa expressing ensembles in right. those so regions. So let's talk about the correlative versus causal. Stuff. Yeah. So sure. how are you getting at that? Um, uh, in terms of experimentally, how are right. you? Because 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 typically the IEG stuff is has always been correlative, right? Right, right. And, I mean, so so the nice the nice thing about uh, getting at causal role is is that using the Foslax Z transgenic system, we're actually able to find, uh, you know, kind of necessity of the ensemble rather rather than sufficient sufficiency. But we do show that there there's a causal role for the FOS expressing ensembles, and we've shown it for uh, nucleus accumbens as well as prefrontal cortex with several different types of addiction relevant learned behavior. Uh, so, so one reason that I've sort of stuck in in kind of looking at functional alterations within those brain regions is because we have already shown that that we know that these these FOS expressing ensembles in these regions uh, are important for for learned behavior. Um, and and the other thing is that the pattern of FOS expression throughout the brain is not identical in every brain region. And in fact, in in kind of hind brain regions, we we see typically a lot less or fewer uh, FOS expressing cells just in in general. So some of these techniques might or maybe you know don't work quite as well for for those types of studies. So in the Cummins shell paper that we, mm-hmm. that we started yeah. with, you're interested in silent synapses mm-hmm. and how the complement changes based on um, uh, associative learning. So right. can you can you tell us why why are we interested in silent synapses and and what you found in the paper? Right. So should I say briefly what they are? Yes. Okay. So silent synapses are these synapses that contain uh, functional NMDA receptors but no functional AMPA receptors and and uh, 
So they are kind of interesting sites for uh, permitting subsequent plasticity because they can have amber receptors inserted or they can be pruned away uh, depending on kind of the subsequent experience of, of the animal. Um, and I was sort of interested in looking at this because there had been some previous studies showing that, that you know, we had an increase in these silent synapses following uh, cocaine experience in animals. And, uh, and a, a previous paper in our lab had shown that uh, there was an increase in silent synapses in the nucleus accumbens neuronal ensemble following context-specific sensitization to cocaine. So, so we started uh, being inter interested in, in what is, you know, are the silent synapses actually important for associative learning? Are they just sort of a, a pharmacological artifact of repeated cocaine? And, and so that was the, the attempt of that paper was to try to parse out if, if these actually are playing, playing a role in, in learning. So how could a silent synapse play a role in learning? What kind of a role would it be? Uh, well, I mean, so I guess in some ways I've thought of it as, as sort of a sort of a metaplastic mechanism, right, where, where um, we now have these, these uh, synapses containing NMDA receptors that then subsequently um, you can have amper receptors inserted and they can become fully functional. And also um, a, a synapse is, is really only silent if, or, or a, a silent synapse containing NMDA receptors is really only silent at hyperpolarized potentials, right? So, so at, at a point where the cell is depolarized, obviously we can be seeing current through these synapses. So it's not, it's not entirely fair to say that, it, that it's silent. Um, but also, you know, there have been some subsequent studies from Yandong's lab showing uh, silent synapse-based circuit remodeling um, after incubation of drug cravings. So we might have some mechanism like that. He, he saw that there was an introduction of calcium permeable amber receptors following um, an increase in silent synapses after uh, cocaine experience. So it, so it might be that, that if we looked at, a, you know, a time point farther out, uh, in these FOSS cells, we might see that they that they remodel and have CP amber receptors inserted. So the idea that, that a, a synapse goes silent mm -hmm. isn't that isn't you don't think that's directly the learning mechanism uh, because you could imagine a mechanism that just deletes the synapses that aren't useful for the learning, and that would be a kind mm -hmm. of learning mechanism, but that's not what you're thinking. I mean, there's a couple possibilities, right? So so I I have thought of the possibility that the silent synapses might actually be sort of a homeostatic response, right? Like like maybe the time course isn't isn't perfect. Um, you know, we we have to we induce FOSS and then record, you know, cut slices ninety to hundred and twenty minutes after. So it might be that the real mechanism is happening right at that moment of learning and then the silent synapse is reflective of kind of the cell's reaction to that. So it might be that that silent synapse itself is not is not actually encoding encoding the learning. The other thing is that the silent synapse is just sort of a functional readout, right? So it, it could be that what we're seeing is is in response to learning the generation of new of new spines, um, and and so in that way I could think of it being a learning mechanism. The the other option is that um, these silent synapses actually represent uh, synapses where amber receptors are being trafficked back into into the cell, and and in that case I see it um, as as being of probably less uh, as a potential learning mechanism, but we haven't yet nailed down what that specific mechanism is. So you're, I guess you're saying, no, I don't think learning ever takes place by removing synapses. It's always by making synapses stronger. Is that what you said? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it, it can, I, I'm sure that removing synapses can be part of part of learning. I guess I had always sort of conceptualized it as building something new, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be true. Maybe that's a model for forgetting. 
Yeah. Moving synapses. <laughs> Whoever came up with the term silent synapse? Because it's got to be one of the worst misnomers out there. Because right. it's not silent, right? No, right. Someone, some slice physiologist, they're yeah. sitting right. there with a, a silent slice, <laughs> it's totally and nothing still happens. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden, they, wow, it's there. If they hold the cell at minus 80, it's definitely um, silent. <laughs> <laughs> a silent synapse and a silent slice. That's mostly where they found it. <laughs> so what I'm curious about is, have you or maybe someone previously in the lab, in, in Bruce's lab, mm -hmm. when you label these ensembles, so in the context-dependent synthesization mm -hmm. paradigm, mm -hmm. um, the animal learns, well, we don't know what the animal learns exactly, but the animal's placed in a context, he's given experience with cocaine, mm -hmm. and when he's placed back in that context, he shows enhanced locomotion, mm -hmm. which indicates that something about this context turns this animal on, he wants to go. Mm -hmm. There's an association there. Mm -hmm. And when you label an ensemble at that time, uh, you cut slices, you look at these neurons, are they D1 positive? or? Which, you know, if you think about the segregation right. of uh, D1 versus D2 positive mm -hmm. neurons in the accumbens, which, is there a preference for a certain type of neuron that gets labeled in the ensemble? Has that been looked at? Right, so so we've done a lot of the, the phenotyping in, in, you know, after all these different types of learning that we've examined. And, and what we tend to find is that um, sort of whatever is true in the normal population of cells in the, in the global brain region is sort of true for the FOSS ensemble as well, so we tend to see that it's about half and half of D1 and D2 cells when, when we do in C2 hybridization. Um, and so in and in the cortical regions, we see about 90% pyramidal neurons and about 10% inner neurons in our FOSS ensemble, generally. Um, here's like a dream experiment, right? Okay. So the problem with the Dono 2 method is does, it doesn't have a negative control. Tell us about the Dono right, 2 so. method. We didn't name it. Oh, okay, yeah, so the, the method in the FOSS lacks Z rats to uh, selectively ablate the FOSS expressing ensembles called the Dono 2 inactivation oh, method. Sorry, go ahead. Dream experiment. Okay. Dream experiment. <laughs> so it, would it be possible to have these these um, these uh, beta uh, galactic, galactic they, mm -hmm. what was the Beta gal. <laughs> beta gal, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, to also express something like halo word opsin um, so that instead of deleting them, or rather than um, inactivating the cells through apoptosis, mm -hmm. just turning them off temporarily and then turning them back on. Yeah. And then you could have them either express the behavior or not express the behavior, depending on whether you're right. shining yellow light on them. Yeah, that, that's a great idea. And that, that, is, that is the dream experiment, and, and um, there's lots of different efforts to try to get uh, to a place where we can do sort of a FOSS-driven opsin expression and also, you know, FOSS-driven uh, dreads and that sort of thing. Because, right. you know, the nice the nice thing about the Dono 2 is we, we can show the necessity, but we can't show the sufficiency of the ensemble, right? So it'd be nice to be able to express channel rhodopsin or something like that and then drive the cells and see, can we recapitulate the behavior just by turning on the FOSS-expressing ensemble during the behavior? Um, so that that is something that we're, that we're working on currently. So what, I mean... I'm sure there's a lot of interest in this, but, you know, it's these FOSS-activated neurons are, you know, sparsely distributed throughout, you know, brain regions. You don't have chunks or, you know, they're, they're all throughout. Mm -hmm. What's, what inputs are potentially, what's unique about, I mean, you say, you know, phenotypically they're representative of, you know, the cells, you know, population as yeah. a whole. But are there specific inputs? So say, you know, looking at the nucleus accumbens, are there, you know, specific inputs to these neurons? Is anybody, you know, looked at, you know, any, any sort of the anatomy or something that could confer some level of specificity to this sparse population, this ensemble. Right. So you're saying kind of what 
what is selecting this ensemble in general? Um, yeah, I, that's that's an important question, and, and it's something that we're trying to get out just by sort of expressing channel adoptions in, in regions that we know project to our region of interest in seeing, you know, do we have some sort of preferential signal coming, you know, say, from hippocampus to accumbens or something, which would be kind of our, our candidate thought is that it, when we're try, trying to learn associations between an environmental context and, and a reward, that you, this might be driven by a place carrying information about the environmental context, right? Uh, but we haven't we haven't done that yet, so we don't we don't know. Um, and then, you know, there's also like Sheena Jocelyn's work that has showed that um, kind of if you overexpress CREB in a population of cells, those cells are then preferentially incorporated into the ensemble. Um, but we kind of find that that maybe isn't the case in, in, in sort of under sort of normal learning conditions because when I when I record from from the FOSS expressing ensembles and just sort of measure their properties, I don't see any sort of difference in the in the baseline nature of the of the FOSS versus FOSS positive versus FOSS negative cells. So so it's hard to say. We we don't really have the answer to that yet. But that may be brain region specific, right? Because it seems like sure. if I understood what you were talking about in the PLC, mm-hmm. the neurons that get incorporated have it increased intrinsic activity, right? Well, no, they actually at baseline don't have any difference in the, in well, the excitability, but oh, over so the course of learning, we see this change. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. Okay, we, do you want to talk about that work? The PLC? Yeah, yeah it's under review, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about because that's kind of interesting. Yeah, sure. So you see a, well, you introduce it. Right, so so I became interested in looking at uh, sort of the neural correlates of operant learning, and the, the type of operant learning that I was looking at was food self-administration, and we know that this re- this part of the prefrontal cortex called the prelimbic cortex plays a role in this in this type of learning, and I became interested in parsing out, um, you know, how, how do ensembles form over the course of this operant learning, um, and, and what is the nature of these ensembles in the prelimbic cortex. Um, and what we found is that um, kind of at the initial stages of learning, we see this big increase in FOSS expression throughout the PLC, and that and it decreases over the course of, of training so that we have what we normally see, which is about a five, 5% of the cells that are, that are active during the expression of the learning after the animals are well, are well trained. Uh, and then I found uh, that when I actually recorded from these cells, there was sort of a, a bidirectional modulation of the excitability in the FOSS negative versus the FOSS positive population of cells. So we see an increase in excitability in the FOSS positive population and a decrease in excitability in the FOSS negative population after learning. So that's incredible. I mean, so these cells are, are getting the same inputs, the negative and the positive cell, the the FOSS negative and FOSS positive, right? So mm-hmm. this is sort of a cool way of, I mean, they're two completely different mechanisms that they're using to do a completely different direction mm-hmm. of plasticity. So, I mean, that too sounds like a great way to separate, you know, patterns and, and yeah. I mean, you know, so they're getting the same input. I mean, are they, are, I don't know, are they? That kind of brings up that whole necessity issue again, right? yeah. because um, if FOSS negative cells are being changed in some way, mm-hmm. And um, only the ones that are CFOS positive are necessary. Mm-hmm. Then what does that say about the ones that are CFOS negative? Right. Um, and so I've sort of I've sort of conceptualized the the change that we see in the FOS negative cells as being sort of a way for the for the system to up the gain on the FOS positive cells, right? So, so you know, the, the increased SK channel uh, expression that we see that drives the decrease in excitability might just be a way to sort of quiet that population of cells to permit the signal through of, of the FOS positive cells. That, that's sort of the way I've thought about it. Um, so, it, so it may be that we, you know, we see it, it's, we do see a behavioral change that's significant, but, but it's not a huge difference. So I, I wonder... 
um, if, if what the false negative neurons is doing is, is sort of supplemental to, to the behavior. I, I mean, obviously, the cells wouldn't be in the brain region if they weren't important for something. So, so I think the false negative are also playing an important, even if it's a modulatory sort of, sort of role. So how specific, though, is this, I mean, this is new research and stuff, but, mm -hmm. you know, this sort of bidirectional modulation mm -hmm. of CFOS positive versus CFOS mm -hmm. negative neurons, is this something that is unique to the, you know, the prelimbic cortex, mm -hmm. or is this something, or to the cortex, or do you see it in the nucleus cumbens, BTA, like, right. I, how global is this sort of, you know, is, is this sort of indicative of some global adaptation that happens throughout the brain, or is this something, you know, brain region specific, you know, um, task specific, um, right cool bidirectional modulation. So I, I don't know because the only the only place that I've looked at is is PLC. I do know that we see sort of a similar um, refinement of the ensemble in other brain regions because we've gone through and looked at several different striatal regions and, and different cortical regions and seen sort of a similar decrease uh, in our FOSS expression over the over the course of this operant training. Um, but I don't know I don't know if the bidirectional modulation of excitability would be something that we would see throughout or if that just sort of makes sense with this sort of like sparse coding mechanisms in, in cortex only. But that's something that, that we want to look at in accumbens as well. So you've only seen the the, the clear bidirectionality. You only looked late, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, I looked at day one versus day 10, right? So there's no change in day one in the intrinsic properties versus background. Versus the not like a naive control, basically yeah. no. The the day one the day one cells look very similar to if I just patch randomly activated cells in a naive animal. Yeah, there's no there's no difference in input resistance in those cells or anything. Yeah. What's getting associated with what? So right, these are supposed to be uh, what the uh, associational uh -huh. things. In right. one case, it's stimuli and another one is some kind of operant thing and mm -hmm. so the neurons by some ancient folklore of neuroscience there ought to be a, a group of neurons that represent that association mm -hmm. but at the neuron level what's what's the association really mean for them is it like in a neural network there would be two different pathways and we'd find that the cell fires one Mm -hmm. Both of them are activated, or does some kind of pattern completion, or something like that. Right. But I, can't, I can't quite see what the association is that these neurons are learning. You mean the PLC neurons? I'd satisfied. I'd be satisfied with any of them. <laughs> Take your pick. Um, I mean, I, I guess I sort of see that the um, you know they're, the association that they're learning is is sort of. You know, you have specific inputs onto the cell um, that confer some sort of specificity about, you know, the environment or the context or the, the cue that you're learning information about, right? And then I, I also assume, at least in the, in the PFC as well as the Cummins, there's integration of some sort of, uh, you know, dopaminergic signal telling you that this is a rewarding, you know, stimulus. And that's sort of stamping in this, this activation of the, the glutamatergic inputs. And, and so, so you're kind of learning that uh, to associate you know, this input that tells you this information about this environment with this, this uh, you know, rewarding property that's carried by the dopaminergic input from... So with that, all the dopamine has to do is strengthen the glutamate synapse. Because the glutamate, the dopamine doesn't actually do anything by itself, right? So, it, but it would strengthen the... Right, that's sort of the, the thought, is that the, the dopamine is sort of playing the role to stamp in the 
the association or, or strengthen the association. See, stamp in is a metaphor. I mean, what I was actually trying to do is get away from metaphors. Oh, okay. So I, was, I, I would kind of like to think of it as a physiological process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, um, I know, I mean, metaphors are important to us, but at some point mm-hmm. when we understand something, we shed them. Right. So the, I was just thinking, is it? It is just. It's a strengthening of glutamate synapse. That's why. Mm-hmm. That's why you don't think the silent synapses can actually be the learning mechanism because it must be that some glutamate synapse gets stronger because it's been associated with some dopamine signal. Is I mean, that right? I I tend to think of it as being. I, I'm a bit biased toward glutamatergic synaptic plasticity just because of my previous research history. But we we know that that you know dopamine is capable of of strengthening these these glutamatergic inputs and the pairings between between these. So so I do I do tend to think of it in those terms. Yeah, and that's what we're seeing in the other places too. Everywhere we look, we're seeing just some dopamine signal has caused the strengthening of one input over the other. Mm-hmm. And I guess there must be a weakening. Because you start out with a lot of cells responding to this input, Mm -hmm. and over days it gets fewer and fewer. Right. So the dopamine signal must be weakening some some of them and strengthening some of them somehow. Is that... Well, not necessarily. I mean, uh, I think that probably what you're getting is a lot of sort of nonspecific activation, right? You, you, You know, when you come into a new environment, there's... And you don't know what's relevant about that place. You sort of pay attention to. Wait, wait. Uh-huh. I'm I'm still thinking about neurons. Yeah. And so here's a bunch of neurons that are activated on day one, mm-hmm. and that means they got a bunch of glutamate input that activated them mm-hmm. on day one, mm-hmm. and then over time they either quit being activated by that glutamate input, mm-hmm. which means those synapses have become weakened, right? Or it means that that input has quit, right? Activated them, and then and then you have to chase that up to the next place say why did that input quit mm-hmm. activating them and somewhere dopamine has to weaken a s- signal that would have normally been there why does dopamine have to be the weakening well, because dopamine signal. is the thing dopamine is the thing right that's what we're well, talking one about one of the things right There's we're associating dopamine too. with glutamate right so so it might just be that the you know dopamine is sort of still cast you know broadcasting the signal in the presence of reward right but the the, the particular glutamatergic input uh, is not activated anymore, right? Why? Like, well, then I have to talk about the animal again, right? So, <laughs> because because not every single glutamatergic input is going to be equally activated every single time the animal goes into the context, right? Well, because they're learning over time that this is important and this isn't. Yeah, but that's you're trying to explain learning by saying that they learned. Then, right, you're saying the reason that this learning happens mm-hmm. is because fewer neurons fire. And the reason fewer neurons fire is because of the learning. So maybe this is something that Sir Charlie's getting at, but maybe this behavioral phenomenon that like have been reported is, you know, it's an impairment in a behavior. But maybe it isn't learning itself. Maybe these are output neurons. Mm-hmm. Maybe the associative learning process happened upstream of these neurons. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I don't know the literature, and maybe there have been control experiments that have done that, but is that also an equally valid way of looking at these this sort of methodology of that? Maybe these are these are output neurons, mm-hmm. and the associative learning happened upstream of right. these neurons. I mean, it, it's it could be right or wrong, but is that a possibility as well that 
the associate, and then this gets around all the questions. But then that get you started. have to you have to go upstream. Then you have to go exactly. You have to go upstream. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't quite get around it, right? Because it just moves it to a it different brain. It does. <laughs> but I mean, it doesn't answer your question. But I mean, yeah, sure. But in a larger picture, though, is there any demonstration that yes, the association has to happen in these neurons, or could it be elsewhere? I, I don't think there's been any demonstration to, to show us exactly where that has to happen. There's this sort of assumption I, that I get from, from the literature that we have all these, these representations stored in various parts of cortex over distri- distributed networks, but I don't think that's really been been shown. That's one of the reasons I wanted to start trying to get at that in prelimbic cortex because, you know, okay, you know, there's some, some suggestion that maybe we're storing something in, in cortex, and well, how is, how, is that, how is that stored, you know? And a lot of those, a lot of those results, the the places that they're stored in, if you look, there's other cells that are more or less encoding lots of different parts of the task all along the chain that you go, right? Right. It's just more higher level stuff there, and there's still lower level stuff responses right. and simple responses there. There's just less or more, and so now you have to. So how does that happen? Is there one place, this association? So that, I mean, some of it comes from you have a sensory you know, stimulus and you have a reward and you have an action and they're, they're right. an association of those things. But they could be all looped together. That has to be you're driving it consistency all the way down. Absolutely. And so that, 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 that begs the question, is there going to be a difference that you see where this mixing is? Or is it going to look any different than it's downstream of the, like you said, the output or even the input? But in some ways, that could explain then the sparse, you know, you know what explains this, the the sparseness of these activated neurons. Potentially, there is a magical nucleus in the brain <laughs> yet to be determined. But then that projects out to, you know, whatever the nucleus accumbens, and that then explains why you have this sparse mm-hmm. activation is because those neurons are now heavily activated right. by the association center. Look, Again, how mythical. Do you, how do you answer these questions? And number one, and number two, the the association just grammatically is such a problematic word, right? Because it's it's many different things. There's the association itself of these two items paired mm-hmm. that live together in one place as an association. Mm-hmm. There's the process of association, right. right? Which is presumably the part of the learning operation. I mean, it's it's. When I think of you saying association, this was what I was trying to get at in the yeah. beginning. Are we talking about these neurons actually storing some sort of engram of mm-hmm. an association between two objects that have right. representations that live in two different like what is the actual what are you imagining? Or is there a sort of a way that people are talking about this right. that is consensus? Or is this sort of still are we still in the phase where we're just sort of grasping it? It's just Anything a, that's an extension of the grandfather cell, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> grandfather and Selma, is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Instead of a, a grandfather cell, oh, this is ridiculous. There isn't a single cell that represents a grandfather. It's an ensemble. <laughs> right? um, how is an ensemble not any less ridiculous? Right. The one thing that seems like that you might have a, a thumb handle on this is one other vague part of the description was you have this non-specific activation mm-hmm. and then it gets pruned down to something. So what is that pruning process? And it's possible that that, ha- that pruning process of activity or whatever you want to call it uh, happens lots of different places, but it's possible that there's a gradient of when the pruning happens. Maybe it gets more specific 
one place and then it gets more specific downstream and you could define a downstream by the time course of the pruning or something mm -hmm. you have. So that, that, that also seems pleasing to the mind, right? But, <laughs> but, uh, so so uh, now Yoshida came out with a paper last year where he, he did it, almost exactly that. He was recording from dopamine neurons and then he used a, a, a single projector, well, one synapse projection um, so that he could identify cells that had direct connections, synaptic connections to the dopamine cell that they're recording. So they record from a dopamine cell and the cell from nucleus A that projects to that dopamine cell. And they can record from another nucleus B that projects to that dopamine cell. The idea was exactly that, right? So one would have some vague idea of context and another one that had some vague idea of taste mm -hmm. and another one that had some vague idea of association. And what it turned out is that every cell seemed like they were doing exactly the same thing, um, making it even worse than an ensemble. Right? So you, you couldn't, couldn't parse out what the cells upstream from the dopamine cells, which we've all decided already that is the important cell, right? Um, are what, what portion of the information that the dopamine cell is receiving actually is being delivered by the different nuclei that we know, not only different nuclei, the particular cells within that nuclear that we know make a synaptic connection to the dopamine cell they were recording at that moment. Um, so I don't know what it is. I don't know where the grandfather lives in, in our head. Do you see CFOS in dopamine in the VTA? Uh, I have I have actually not been able to get FOS expression in, in the VTA. Which, which would then be consistent exactly with, you know, now's recent paper, which was saying that they all do the same thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm not sure. They should all have C FOS. Yeah. Yeah. So that means, yeah, that, what that says is domain cells are never activated. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is one of the more problematic things is that dopamine neurons are cells that we know are always active and yet they don't express FOS, so it presents a little bit of a problem for us. But um, but I don't I don't I'm not exactly sure why, but it seems like different brain regions are, are differentially good or bad at expressing FOS and and uh, yeah, and VTA is not not a good FOS expressing region. I think it's interesting though when you talk about the idea of the refinement of your ensemble over time. When you first throw an animal into a novel context, mm -hmm. you get a huge ensemble. Mm -hmm. And there's also, dopa of course, everything's dopamine-centric, right? Mm -hmm. Of right. course. The whole yeah. world revolves around dopamine. <laughs> but there's plenty of dopamine neurons that respond to saliency and novelty. Mm -hmm. And LTP in a slice is forever. But in an animal, of course, you know, you have constant shifting of, mm -hmm. you know, LTP can be induced and then be depotentiated. Or right. Whatever you may have some short-term mm -hmm. uh, plasticity that sure. may be dopamine-dependent in right. your cummins on day one, but then goes away and may contribute to the refining of your ensemble. I don't I'm know sure. if that's something that you buy, but no, I mean that's one that's one possible explanation for sure. But something we have to test. <laughs> Well, thank you for joining thank us you. and talking us through some of this stuff. This is really cool. Um, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.